Do you know that the word peace is found exactly 400 times in the Bible? There's really something to this thing. And peace can speak of reconciliation with God. If you've been saved, you understand that. It can speak of peace with one another and not being at odds. It can speak of peace internally within in the midst of ugly circumstances. It can speak of a, of a peace that comes when it's time to die and you're on your deathbed, but you have peace in the midst of all of that. Let's be people of grace and let's use the grace that's been appropriated to us to live the Christian life, right? The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, at this time and turn to the epistle of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We are concluding what's been a wonderful series here through this book chapter by chapter and verse by verse and even word by word. And we're bringing it to a conclusion today. And uh, we're going to be looking at a a few closing thoughts that the Apostle Paul had in an epistle that was written about 20 years after Jesus Christ had resurrected and gone back up to heaven. It was written from either Athens or Corinth. I lean toward Corinth. Uh, They're only about 65 miles apart, both in southern Greece. And we find here that Paul gives to us some golden nuggets that we want to mine out of these last half a dozen verses here in the last part of chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. We begin in verse number 13. He says, But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand that is the token of every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, I back you up to verse 16. Paul says, Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. We're going to be talking about that peace today, or what I call peaceful living. Peaceful living. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you now for this admonition given in thy word. Help us now to take it in and to apply it. May we listen carefully and may we understand. And Father, may you use the truths we'll be discussing today to help us in a wonderful way. We pray now and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, and I think it was the, uh, the Japanese, they made a recording, actually, of what it sounds like in the womb of a pregnant woman because they were trying to duplicate how, how gentle and, and how peaceful it was within a, a woman's womb so that it would be a recording that they could simulate and they could play back to a child after they are born and to help them to be calm. May I say to you, When you were conceived and as you were being formed in the womb of your mother, that was about the most peaceful time of your existence. It really was. Because after that moment, when the day came, there was the trauma of birth, that travailing to give birth, but it's it's rough on the baby as well. And you came out with a squeezed little cone head on you, and 
and you were smacked on your little behind and you were placed on a a cold stainless steel scale and it just went south from there, didn't it? (laughs) You know, the truth be known, it will never be that peaceful again because this world is not a peaceful place. It's just not. In fact, it is un- it's full of unreasonable people. We find in verse 2, we saw that here. Paul says, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. We live in a very unreasonable world. And we read this over in Psalm 120 and verse 7. The, the psalmist said, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. You ever feel that way? Man, I'm just trying to, to keep the peace, but people don't seem to want to get on this side of the rope. And when I, I, I speak for peace, they are for war. You know, the Bible speaks of, I think of this expression often, such contradiction of sinners against ourselves. You ever feel that? Such contradiction of sinners against you. And yet, we're told in Romans 12:18 that if it be possible, As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. And so it says, as much as possible, as much as lieth within you, try and live peaceably. Try and be a peacemaker. Don't be a troublemaker. Are you a peacemaker? I hope you are. There's so many who aren't. So we get to actually the very end of the epistle. And Paul has some things to say about peace. Back in verse 1, he had used the word finally. (laughs) Finally, brother. Remember that? And then he went on another 18 verses here. But now he is finally going to close. And we find these two epistles, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, the earliest epistles that that the Apostle Paul wrote. Now they are coming to an end here. In verse 17, he says, the salutation, or the sign-off, if you will, of Paul. With mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. Here's his his farewell, and it's a very common farewell. You you see it over in 1 Corinthians 16 where he says, The salutation of me, Paul, with mine own hand. Why did he do this? Well, it kind of sanctioned the letter. It gave authenticity to it because there was a lot of forgeries and frauds going around and, and the devil had been very busy. So Paul is careful now to say, okay, I wrote this and it's in his handwriting. In Philemon 1.19, he says, I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. And this is to counter those frauds and those forgeries and those counterfeits out there that uh, others were circulating saying, well, this is Paul. Paul wrote this. And no, no, Paul made sure we knew when he wrote something. You know, there's a lot of forgeries and frauds still floating around out there. And it's a free-for-all with people trying to add books to the Bible. I've heard of the, the lost gospel of Barnabas. Yeah, right. Or the lost epistle of, of Mary Magdalene. Uh-huh, sure. And, and, and so there's so many things like that. By the way, the Apocrypha doesn't cut it either. There's a lot of things that just don't belong in the Bible. We've got the 66 books of the Bible. But the, the devil is a busy devil. And he's always trying to confuse people. In fact, we, we studied this earlier in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2. Paul says that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. See, there were some frauds floating around at that time, some letters floating around that, that said, well, the Lord's already come back and you missed the rapture. And so Paul begins to address these letters as from him. They really weren't. But they were out there floating around because the, the devil is so deceitful. And never forget this. The devil never plays fair. 
I was talking to somebody this last week who was so confused, and I thought of how the devil masquerades as an angel of light, the Bible says. And so he, he, he specializes in faking people out. So Paul had to be careful in, in making sure that he had put his stamp on the letters that he wrote. In Galatians 6.11, he said, You see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. And so they could look at the handwriting of Paul and say, Well, that, that's definitely Paul's handwriting. You know, I, uh, I'll never forget my mother's handwriting. We have in our home a little wooden plaque, and it's, it, there's a banana bread recipe engraved in it with her handwriting. And whenever I look at that, it just warms my heart. And I, I can think of these people here now at Thessalonica looking at Paul's handwriting and say, oh, this is Paul, all right. Now, later on, uh, I think Paul's eyesight got bad, and, and so sometimes he would have an orator write for him. He closed uh, Romans 16 this way. He's, he's narrating, but he lets Tertius say this. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. But it was still Paul. It was still Paul that gave us the book of Romans. So we find here Paul has some great things to say as he wraps up his, his epistle here to the church, a local church like this, at Thessalonica. And what does he have to say to them? Well, first of all, I find in this, these half a dozen verses what I call a challenge to resilience, a challenge to resilience. In verse 13, he says, But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing, be not weary in well-doing. There's a, there's a challenge here to keep on going, to persevere. There was a noble family over in Europe someplace, and I forget the country, but they had a family motto, and they have crests over there. They're shields, and they, they have their family crest on it. And this particular family crest just had one word on it, persevera, persevera. And so I consulted with a Latin expert this last week, and I said, what does that mean, this motto, this crest? And, and they said the word persa means through, and, and vera means discipline, and together they mean through discipline, through discipline. And in verse 13, Paul says, but ye brethren, be not weary in well-doing. In other words, persevere. In other words, don't lose your heart. Now, Paul here is, has been talking and actually rebuking some folks who had gotten idle. Remember that? And they had gotten shiftless, and they were meddling. And, and I think he's saying one of two things in verse number 13. Either get back to work and don't be weary in well-doing, or he's telling the others who are putting up with these busy bodies, now be patient with them, don't give up on them here. And uh, in verse 13 again, he says, But ye brethren, be not weary, notice, in well-doing, in doing well. Who is the greatest example we have of just, just keep, keeping on, keeping on, and doing well? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. His ministry is summed up later in Acts 10.38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good. You say, oh, it's so simple. I know, but that's the life of Christ. He went about in well-doing. He went about doing good. That's characteristic of God. And again, in verse 13, we find Paul says, But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. He's saying, keep on praying, okay? Keep on witnessing. Keep on attending church faithfully. Keep on teaching. Keep on preaching. Keep on singing. Stay faithful in uh, your giving. Uh, keep passing tracts out. Uh, keep being faithful in the nursery. Keep being faithful in the bus ministry. And we could go on and on with the cleaning and the mowing and the snow removal and whatever it might be. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Be not weary in well-doing. I had someone ask me yesterday, gotten saved recently, and they said, is, is there something that I can do around here? Is there some way that I can contribute? 
And, and I think of all the ways there are to be involved. The happiest Christians are involved Christians. We have a little-known ministry here, and most people don't even realize it, called the Compassion Ministry. And we have folks that go to shut-ins. We have folks that go to nursing homes or hospitals, and they go there, and they encourage those people, and they cheer them up. And honestly, I think it does more good for the person that does it than the folks they go to. So if you've got the blahs, okay, please... Be not weary in well-doing. Get back to serving once again. It'll go from a drudgery to a delight if you just get engaged once again. Verse 13 is a great truth. But ye brethren, be not weary in well-doing. There's a great verse that sums it up, and every Christian ought to memorize this. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? It says, for you know that your labor is not in vain with the Lord, in the Lord. And I don't want to get to the end of my life and die, and I don't want at my funeral to say, well, he was faithful for a while, but then he just pulled up short. He quit serving the Lord. No, I want them to say he was not weary in well-doing, and he just kept on going, keep going. We find a sister verse to this verse over in Galatians 6, 9, which says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Now there's a contingency attached to it. If we'll just keep going, there's going to be some fruit. And in due season we'll reap if we faint not. So just keep on trying. You know, sometimes Christians stop trying to do something for God because they may be messed up trying to do something for God. And they say, well, I just don't want to mess up again. Well, God doesn't expect perfection from us. He just wants us to try. We find in Matthew 25, Christ tell a parable of three men who were given talents. One got five, one got two, and one got one. And the guy who had five and the guy who had two, they went out and they did something with what God had given them, the Lord had given them. The guy with one went and buried his talent, there's an expression, and did nothing with it, and he's the one who got the rebuke for simply not trying. I preached a message one time entitled, The Man Who Would Not Try. And all God is asking is that we attempt something for him. Just try and do something. Just, just do your best for him. We read in Romans twelve eleven that we should be not slothful in business, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So don't lose your heart. Don't lose your heart. Be not weary in well-doing. Just keep on keeping on. There's a difference between getting weary in the work and getting weary of the work. There's nothing wrong with getting weary in the work. I get weary in the work. But God help us not to get weary of the work. You know, there's a great passage back in the Old Testament book of Judges. And it's describing a, a battle that took place with Gideon and the Midianites. The Midianites had tens of thousands of soldiers, and Gideon had his little band of 300. You remember that story? And God worked a miracle in the midst of God's people there, the Jews, and they put that huge band on the run. And we read in Judges 8.4 that Gideon came to Jordan, the Jordan River, and passed over he and the 300 men that were with him, faint, yet pursuing them. I love that. Faint, yet pursuing. There's a whole sermon there. Faint, yet pursuing. Are you faint, but still pursuing? I get that way. Faint, but yet pursuing. You contrast those guys to a different group, the tribe of Ephraim. And I wish I had a time to, uh, to preach on these guys, but they were really a, a bunch of blowhards. And it was the, the chicken tribe, really, of Israel. 
And we read this in the psalm. Psalm 78, verse 9, speaks of the children of Ephraim. Being armed and carrying bows, turn back in the day of battle. What a contrast. Oh, they got all the weapons. They're doing all the marching. They're looking big, but they turn back. Being armed and carrying bows, turn back in the day of battle. I don't want to have this stuff. I don't want to have the equipment and turn back with it. And we have a church here full of people who are equipped to go to battle. Let's be like Gideon and his guys, faint, yet pursuing. And not like the Ephraimites who, they were armed, they're carrying bows, but they turned back. You know, I can't run as fast as I used to run, and I can't uh, work with the energy that I used to work with physically speaking, but it's not an excuse to quit, not for any of us here. We find in 2 Corinthians 4.1, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. We faint not. Let's not faint. Let's be, let's be faint yet pursuing. And may I commend so many of you. I know you get weary and I know you get discouraged. But I'm, I'm proud of you because you keep on going out of a love for the Lord. Out of a heart for God. And, and if you've kind of pulled over and stopped pursuing, please re-enlist. God could really use you. So we see here, first of all, Paul gives this challenge for resilience. He says in verse 13, but ye brethren, be not weary in well-doing. But then in verse 14, we see secondly, a, a sighting of rebellion. He flips the coin over. He says in verse 14, and if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Many years ago, Napoleon came in on his uh, men, a, a large band of his men, a certain division, and, and, and they were actually fighting. They were duking it out. They were having it out there. And he went, hey, hey, hey there, stop that. And, and so they stopped. They, they stood at attention. And Napoleon said, who's behind this? Nobody admitted it. <laughs> Shock, huh? Nobody fessed up to it. So then Napoleon said, okay, I want the respectable men here to stand over on this side, and I want the scoundrels who started this to stand over on that side. Guess what? Nobody stood over on that side. Everybody stood, stood among the respectable men. And he said, now let's start acting like gentlemen. Let's start acting like respectable men, if you all are. We find in verse 14 that Paul draws a line. He draws a line there in the membership of the folks there at Corinth. Now, back in verse number 6, he's already commanded them. Notice he says, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly. He says, I command you. But now he puts some teeth in it. I mean, really, in verse 14, he says, and if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Now, why would you stop having company with that man? Well, because he could drag you down. We find a principle over in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Now, there are some folks in that church there at Thessalonica who had gotten idle, and uh, they had become uh, busybodies and slothful, and we've already looked at the strong warning against that. In 1 Timothy 5.13, it says, they learned to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also, and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. You see how we go downhill when we become idle, he mentions not only idle, but tattlers also, and busybodies, and speaking things which they ought not. 
So Paul tells that church there in verse 14, have no company, no company. In other words, in the Greek, it means don't mingle. It, it means don't, don't mix with them. In verse 11, we saw that he used the word disorderly. He said, there are those who walk among you disorderly. And remember, we define that as breaking rank. They're not in step. Here's the direction a church ought to be going, but they're not in rank. They're breaking step. And these folks here who had gotten idle and turned into tattlers and busybodies had, had, had messed up there and gotten out of sync and gotten out of step. And Paul is calling them out on it. You know, a church, a genuine New Testament church should be like a beehive of activity. I can't think of a, and it is around here. Thank God for that. I mean, it's Grand Central Station around here all week long, and especially over the weekends, but it ought to be that way. A New Testament church really ought to be a a beehive of busy bees, not busy bodies. You get the difference? And there's a big difference. We have been giving something called the Great Commission from our Lord. Before he ascended back up to heaven, and this is missions month, so let's just point it out. We've been given this grand, great commission to go into all the world, get the gospel to every creature, and try and point folks to Christ like we're doing this last week around here. We ought to be focusing on that. And as we stay focused on that, we we are staying in step with the commission here and what we really want to do. And so Paul, he says in verse 14, this stuff shouldn't be going on. We see this sighting of rebellion. But thirdly, we see this call for repentance. In the last part of verse 14, he says, And have no company with him that he may be ashamed, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Notice he mentions in verse 14 that he may be ashamed. That is the goal in bringing someone to their senses, to help them to realize that their, accept- their behavior is not acceptable. There were some folks, they were idle, and they were being busybodies, and being tattlers, and they were going around causing trouble. And Paul said, pull away from them. Why? So that they might be ashamed. Why? So that they might come to their senses and realize this is not acceptable. And it's a call to repentance. There's, there's always a tip-off if there's truly repentance on the part of a perpetrator. And it's mentioned here in verse 14. He says, have no company with him that he may be ashamed. But verse 15 seems contradictory. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Where's the contradiction here? Well, there is a time for restoration, always. But it has to involve repentance, always. There must be repentance. There can't be restoration without Repentance. You say, well, how, how do we know if there's genuine repentance? Well, here's a great passage. Leviticus 26.40 says, If they shall confess their iniquity, if then their uncircumcised heart be humbled, and they then accept the punishment of their iniquity. You see some things mentioned here by Paul. First of all, they confess that, okay, it was wrong. Secondly, they're humble. Their hearts are humbled. Thirdly, they accept the punishment. If you find somebody like that, you know you've got repentance. Now, at Thessalonica, they were loitering. They were loitering. But at Corinth, there was actually immorality going on. In fact, it was an incestuous relationship. It was an affair between a a member of that church and his stepmother. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 5, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, 
that the spirit, the spirit of the church may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And that's, that's hard language. Paul says, deliver such a one to the devil that the spirit might be saved. He was saying to those folks, withdraw from them. And they did, apparently. And he was ashamed. And guess what? He repented. And so Paul comes along. He writes his second epistle because the folks in the church there, they just kept the shame going. And and Paul said, no, no, no. It's time to reverse the thing here. There's repentance. Now let's restore. In 2 Corinthians 2, he says, sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrarywise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such an one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech or beg you that you would confirm your love toward him. What's the difference between those two passages? Deliver him over to Satan. Now, hey, hey, let up. He, he's okay now. The difference is repentance. The guy repented. The Greek word for repentance is metanoio. Meta means change. Noio means thinking or knowledge or what we know. And together it's talking about a change of mind. It's that simple, a change of mind. You know, we read about the prodigal son over in Luke chapter 15, who he goes and he spends his father's fortune on harlots and booze, and he hits bottom, and he comes to the end of himself. And he says, this is stupid. I, I'm an idiot. I, I, I'm sorry I did all this. And he's talking to himself as he works his way back home saying, I'm going to go to my father and, and say, Father, I, I've sinned against God and against thee and I'm no longer to be called your son. Well, that's obvious repentance. He says, make me as a hired servant. Well, now he's accepting the punishment coming his way. And now that he's repented, it's a beautiful thing. There's restoration. The father embraces him. He doesn't hold it against him. His brother still has an attitude, doesn't he? And that's what Paul's warning these folks in that church at Thessalonica. Don't do that. There's repentance now. You can restore him. Verse 15, he says, admonish him as a brother. These same folks at Thessalonica who had been idle, they had been busybodies, they had been meddling, they were troublemakers, they were, they were disorderly, they were, they were out of step, they had swerved now from the doctrine that Paul had left behind with them. Apparently they repent. And so Paul says, restore them, restore them, and, and get them back into quietness and let's go on here and, and it's a wonderful thing. We see that call for repentance. Finally, we see, fourthly, that comfort of respite. And it's mentioned in verse 16. He says, Now, the Lord of peace himself give you peace always, by all means. The Lord be with you all. What a wonderful verse this is. It reminds me of what Jesus said over in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. He said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's so peaceful sounding here. What a promise, by the way, from the word of God. What a promise to unsaved people, to come unto Christ, all ye that labor. You're you're, you're trying to work your way to heaven and are heavy laden, that is with your sin. He says, and I will give you rest. How? Come to Christ in repentance, change of mind, metanoio, and put your faith and your trust in him and find that rest the Bible speaks of known as salvation. We sung about being born again a little while ago. Have you ever had a time in your life when you saw yourself as a lost, hell-bound, hell-deserving sinner, but in repentance you changed your mind about your sin and you turned to Christ in faith and trusted what he did on that cross, that sacrifice he made, that blood he shed as the only thing you're trusting in to take you to heaven? 
Have you been born again the Bible way? That's salvation. Now, afterwards, in John 16, Christ says to his own, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have, what? Peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. Oh, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In the world you shall have tribulation. But in Christ we can have peace. You know, over in Acts chapter 12, I read an amazing thing. Herod's beheaded James, one of the disciples. He saw that it pleased the Jews, so now he takes Peter. Oh, the big fish. He, he takes him into captivity, and he has him waiting on death row in a, in a cell chained between two soldiers, two big hairy-chested thugs who were going to make sure he didn't get away. And, and, and Peter is sitting there that night. Is he chewing his nails and spitting them out? Is he lighting cigarette after cigarette, all, all nervous in the service? No. Bible says he's sleeping. He's sleeping. It's amazing to me. But that's that peace the Bible talks about here. You know, in Acts chapter 27, Paul's on a ship with a, a bunch of rugged sailors and soldiers, and, and there's a storm at sea, and they're, help, help, help. They're crying out like a bunch of little girls. And, and Paul, in the midst of them, is saying, hey, stay calm. We're going to be okay. Not a hair of your head's going to be lost. We're going to lose the ship, but we'll all be fine. He kind of, he takes over. The little apostle takes control of the whole situation there. And he just brings peace to that situation. He starts passing out bread. Hey, you guys haven't eaten for days. Just don't worry. And, and uh, you find that peace in his heart because he knew the Lord. He stayed level-headed. That's peace. Do you know that the word peace is found exactly 400 times in the Bible? There's really something to this thing. And peace can speak of Reconciliation with God, if you've been saved, you understand that. It can speak of peace with one another and not being at odds. It can speak of peace internally within, in the midst of ugly circumstances. It can speak of a, of a peace that comes when it's time to die and you're on your deathbed. But you have peace in the midst of all of that. Verse 16 calls Christ the Lord of peace. See that there in verse 16? Now the Lord of peace himself. He is the Lord of peace. He can walk on choppy water. He can calm a stormy sea. The first thing he had to say after his resurrection was, peace be unto you. And by the way, one day he's going to bring peace to this world that knows nothing of peace. We find this written of him 700 years before his birth. Isaiah 9, 6 says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government should be upon his shoulder, and his name should be called the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Ephesians 2.14 says, for he is our peace. We live in a world that it desires peace. There, there are marches for peace. There are protests for peace. I've seen peace protests where riots break out. Isn't that just human nature? In Isaiah 48, 22, it says, There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. In fact, in John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. He said, I've got a special peace for you. Oh, it's not the peace of the world. This is a totally different peace. The world really doesn't understand peace. Peace is a rare thing in this world. In the history of humanity, there's been less than 8% of the time where there has been no war going on. 
In the past 3,500 years, there has only been 286 years where there was no war someplace in the world. And during that time, there were over 8,000 peace treaties that were broken. There was a British author by the name of Lord Montgomery. He wrote a famous novel entitled The The History of of Warfare. They asked him as an old man, he was 82 years of age, uh, they said, Lord Montgomery, if you're ever marooned on a desert island, what book, of any book in the whole world would you want to have with you? He said, I'd want my book with me, The History of of Warfare. And he said, I'd like to go through the whole thing word by word again and, and try and figure out some way to bring peace to this warring world. You know, back in 1969, Apollo 11 gently set down upon the moon in what they called the Sea of Tranquility with a motto, We have come in peace for all mankind. And Neil Armstrong described how peaceful it was there. Well, of course, man wasn't there yet to wreck the peace. God help us. There's war in the world because there's war in the human heart. And we can talk about getting nations to get along, but we can't get husbands and wives to get along. We can't get siblings to get along. We can't get team members to get along. And even sometimes Christian folks don't get along. And yet, after we're saved, we find we have this nature that should enable us to be peaceful people. And in Romans 12, 18, again, it says, If it be possible... As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. It speaks here of something we really need to work on. Apparently, from the way it's worded, if it be possible, and as much as lieth in you, live peaceably among all men. Talking about being a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. You see, Hebrews twelve fourteen says, Follow peace with all men, and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. That's an interesting verse, isn't it? It's talking about certain Christians, and if you really want to see the Lord, that is, be real in your life, be powerful in your life, be close to you in your life. These are some things we need, the peace and the holiness here. You know, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul continually opened up his epistles with grace and peace, grace and peace, 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 peace. And he prayed for those churches that he had started, that there'd be peace within the midst of them. And he wrote to the church at Corinth, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. And apparently that peace had been interrupted in Corinth. Apparently it had been interrupted in the church at Thessalonica and many, many other churches since. The devil devil loves to disrupt the peace. We should not be ignorant of his devices. And we should determine that we're going to be a peacemaker. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, simply, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. The Apostle Paul in verse 16 says, By all means. May he give you peace always by all means. Whatever it takes, go out of your way to keep the peace. We read in Ephesians 4, 3, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring means really working at it, going around the mud puddles, not sloshing through them, going out of our way to keep the peace. Minding our own business, staying within our own jurisdiction, uh, leaving well enough alone, not trying to impose our opinions on everybody. That's pride, by the way. That's pride. Thinking we have it all figured out is pride. 
And we read this, only by pride cometh contention. Let's keep the peace. If we have the Prince of Peace living within us, let's have what the Bible describes, peace like a river in Isaiah 48. Well, finally, you say, Pastor, you said finally already. I know, I'm taking my cue from the Apostle Paul. We've seen the challenge of resilience. We've seen the sighting of rebellion. We've seen the call for repentance and the comfort of respite. And finally, and very quickly, the closing of repose. It's just such a wonderful verse. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That's it. That's how it ends. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Can you see Paul sitting in a shabby little hut someplace? in Corinth with his, his quill in hand, this, this Greek city, surrounded by all this wickedness, and he's writing this, this final salute. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's an admonition for that church there at Thessalonica to tap into some grace. All these challenges he had given them, he's saying it's going to take grace for you to live this, to obey this. Tap into that grace. May I close out this epistle with this same challenge Let's be people of grace, and let's use the grace that's been appropriated to us to live the Christian life, right? You know, the Bible says, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. If there's issues in your heart, it's not God's fault. There's a grace available for you to go on, to move on in love and in grace, and in peace. Show grace. That's how Paul opened this epistle. That's that's how he closes this epistle and so many of his other epistles. That's how God closes the Bible, by the way. Revelation 22, 21 says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And now in verse 18, Paul simply says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And he adds, Amen. His final challenge to that church, as far as we know, is a challenge to be people of grace, a church of grace. I found a poem this last week I kind of like. It's called My Church. A room of quiet, a temple of peace, a home of faith where doubting cease, a house of comfort where hope is given, a source of strength to help us to heaven, a place of worship, a place to pray. I found all this in my church today. Well, that concludes the book. I hope it's been helpful. May God add his blessings to it. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.